And so the music that I remember, that sweeping, those violins that we remember from Gone with the Wind, we also wanted to incorporate that or integrate that within the film at some level to remind uh, our audience of how we had been intoxicated um, by this idea of a really romantic, romanticized, beautiful antebellum South. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. Today's episode takes us behind the scenes of directors Gerard Bush and Christopher Renz's new thriller, Antebellum. The film tells the story of Veronica, a renowned sociologist who must escape a terrifying reality that threatens her life and freedom. Antebellum is Mr. Bush and Mr. Renz's feature directorial debut. Mr. Bush and Mr. Wren spoke with fellow director Tiller Russell about filming Antebellum in front of a virtual audience. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. Hello, everyone. Uh, I'm Tiller Russell, and I am uh, thrilled to be with, here with you today, welcoming Gerard Bush and Christopher Rents, the uh, brilliant filmmaking duo behind the uh, visionary new film, uh, Antebellum. Guys, how are you? Uh, we're doing great. Yeah. Good, good. Hearing that music and that logo makes us miss going to these Q&As in person at that beautiful theater. Nice we get to contribute to the podcast, though. I, I know that I, for one, have been, you know, frequently geeking out on it, having not being able to go to the screenings. It's nice to at least be able to hear uh, hear people tell their stories and what it's like uh, making these films. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Um, so uh, I wanted to start with something, which is I had read recently, there was a New Yorker article um, that was about Tarkovsky, and in it, there was a, a beautiful quote that, that he had said, and it was something along the lines of, when a film is not a document, it's a dream. And I thought, you know, watching your film it really struck me as a dream and the sort of like dreamlike nature of it. And then the dreamlike origins of the movie. I wonder if you could kind of talk us through a little bit about the kind of the, that initial flash uh, and how it goes from a dream to a document to a movie. You know, I, I think for, for Christopher and I, a lot of our inspiration does come from um, dreams, whether it's in a, in a walking state, you know, just allowing your mind to wander. But this particular dream or nightmare that I had, um, it, I would qualify it as a, as a dream, but it felt like something so much richer um, in texture and, and really unique for me because I wasn't at the center of the dream and I was observing it. I was observing this person um, and that's what made it feel uh, if I would call it extraordinary within the context of dreams that I have, it, it, it just didn't feel, it wasn't the sort of normal rotation of what I experience at night. But when the nightmare was over, I was so moved by it and moved into um, waking up that I used the notes on my phone to write everything down so that I could discuss it with would see the next morning and figure out if this is something that would be interesting for a short story. But it was really important for us when we got into the script writing and what we wanted to see on the screen, that the film felt like in many ways, a nightmare when it concludes a nightmare that you wake up from. And I think that um, in many ways that can be compared to what Veronica and Eden or 
you know, Veronica Henley went through as a character, as a, as a person, unfortunately for her, it was all too real, but for, for us, um, as a society, um, striking that empathetic chord and understanding what it must have been like for people that were stolen from their families, stolen from their homeland and forced into free labor brutally and, um, not having any way to wake up from that nightmare. And so we wanted to, to communicate that on screen in some way that felt meaningful. Talk about, um, you know, I was struck by the fact that technically it had, you know, particularly that open, which I think we could we could spend the entire podcast just on that opening shot. And, and I'd love to sort of, you know, have you guys take us through um, how you designed that, what it took to execute it, um, and specifically the way it kind of culminates in the use of, I would, I would say kind of the combination of silence and rage, right? Where sort of music is dominating instead of hearing production sound. And they're, and they're right from the beginning, you get this, this, this very visceral um, kind of impression of, of the silence of rage. And talk us, so talk us through that as an idea and how you evoked the dreamlike nature of it, beginning with that, you know, bravura, amazing opening shot. Well, I think uh, we always wanted to open the film at sunset and conclude it at sunrise at the dawn of a new day. And that sounds great um, on paper, but that gives you, you know, two goes at it per day um, for this, this seven minute shot. And uh, we have to say that it, it wouldn't have happened without our incredible AD Gary Marcus, who's fantastic. Um, but as far as the, the, the look and the feel of it, it we, kind of became obsessed with obtaining the lenses uh, used to shoot Gone with the Wind, um, along with our, our cinematographer, Pedro Luke, who's incredible. Um, and we finally found them, fit them to our cameras, and, uh, and, and that was kind of the, the impetus for, for how we were going to execute that shot and start in the first 15 seconds where you think you're watching Gone with the Wind. And the rest of that shot is exactly how that romanticized version of the antebellum South was possible. And how did you how did you begin to choreograph it? How long did it take you? Talk about working with your AD uh, and sort of what is the what is the process of that? Um, how much preparation? The design of the shot? Are you on uh, Steadicam? Are you using dollies? Like take us through all the specifics of it. Well, it was Steadicam, uh, and that was what made it especially challenging because we needed the shot via Steadicam um, to feel as though you were gliding into this, what initially feels like this really beautiful dream that is then transformed, you know, the, the prismatic colors and, um, you know, the, the beautiful house and the daughter and the flowers and the butterflies. And then you get past where the enslaved women are at the clothesline and everything goes sideways. And so for us in the conversations that we had with Gary Marcus and Pedro Luke and our crew about wanting to create something that felt operatic, um, we also wanted um, to tip the hat at Wagner a bit in terms of just the, the music and the score because of Hitler's obsession with Wagner. Um, and the choreography that was required for this meant that we would have to suck up our our time in rehearsal 
beyond what would be ordinary rehearsal when we only had 27 days to shoot and less than $10 million in our budget to get all of this done and move base camp three times, you know, in terms of moving from rural to city. So it was, and to add insult to injury, the ground was really soggy. Um, and our uh, camera operator that was working under Pedro had a lot of difficulty in being able to make it a half mile for a continuous shot from the front of the house all the way to the back of the house. And I would stay with uh, the monitor and Christopher is yelling with a portable monitor. And this happened, we almost had the perfect shot the third day that we tried. And someone, it was like a, a Game of Thrones moment because someone had a Coca-Cola and they were in the shot and shouldn't have been there. And it was a crew member and we were right there. Like everything was perfect and it disintegrated at that point. Um, so when we finally achieved this shot, when I tell you uh, the audibles of that celebration and what it was like, not not to say that we knew that it was gonna be as as extraordinary as that we hoped it was in our minds, but just the fact that we had achieved it and that everybody did on cue what they needed to do because you've got the horse carriage um, that that's coming in in the back and then you have another horse carriage that has to cross just in the nick of the time when Eric Lang crosses the road. Um, you've got Janelle uh, Monet, our star, who has to be slung on the back of a horse and it's basically, everything just had to be perfect and just so. Um, and so, you know, I think Christopher and I decided that in our commitment to achieving the shot, because that was really going to set the pace, the tenor for the en entire movie. So it was crucial that we not abandon it and that we really stay and do whatever is necessary to achieve that shot. So, you know, it was hard earned, but it was, it was well worth it for us in order to, to really complete the movie in the way that we'd imagined. Well, it was so masterfully done because it's so immersive and it's so um, elegantly designed. And, and, and I guess one of the things that's interesting about you guys as multi-hyphenates, writers, directors, producers, um, I'm, I'm curious how much of that shot was literally on the page because there are all of these progressive reveals. It's one sort of card turn after another throughout that shot. How was that kind of, was it scripted as such? Was that something that you guys designed, you know, in pre-production? How did, how did the specifics of that kind of, and how did it translate from script to screen? So our, our scripts are literally the, the roadmap for everything that we're going to do. So they kind of read in a way like a book, um, even though it's the shooting script to answer your question, it was in the script, every detail of what you were going to see in that shot. Um, but we designed it in pre-production. We, we would spend 10 hours a day with Pedro um, designing the shot list to make it just so to make it perfect. And I mean, we spent a lot of time back in production getting prepared for that because we wanted it to feel, um, remembering that this is our first feature and, you know, no one's ever heard of us. And we, we wanted to make very clear what our identity is 
as filmmakers from the very first frame that you understood that you were going to have an experience so much of of what's happening now with streaming and there's some really extraordinary films that you can access on streaming look at you know theaters are closed but even prior to that i think um you have a choice as a filmmaker whether or not you're going to create something that's for passive watching or something that really is an experience and so this immersive shot that begins the film not that we anticipated that we were not going to be in theaters at that at that point obviously uh, we made the film for the theaters we are advocates of the theaters and we are proponents and champions of the theatrical experience so we designed the movie to be seen communal in a communal experience in the dark with total strangers but when you're when you're watching it you're you're immersed in something and you know i hope um i watched marlon brando the other day uh who was a thorn in the side of too many amazing directors but for good reason because he's such an extraordinary he was such a legendary actor but he said you know the goal is to prevent them from moving their hand from that popcorn to their mouths to stop them from doing that i don't want to hear any chewing you're so absolutely immersed in what's happening and so that's what we were looking to achieve with that shot well, you, you certainly did. It was absolutely brilliantly done. Um, I had a conversation once with, with Peter Berg, the director, who said to me, you know, when a movie really works, you have to like, it feels like somebody who knows what they're doing, what they're doing has grabbed you from the very beginning and is taking you very specifically to a very clear ending. And I literally just felt from that opening shot, like, wow, these guys uh, have such a clear and sort of crystalline vision of what they're doing. Um, so, so brilliantly done. Um, talk about the music, because I think that that's also, you know, a signature element of kind of making that shot work. It's very bold. You talked about the kind of nod to Wagner, um, but talk about working your working with your composer in that regard and kind of communicating. Are you using temp music? Are you guys, you know, listening to things on set? Talk about talk about the, that process. Yeah, um, Nate and Roman, we we worked with. It was their first time uh, composing any film, <clears throat> so we kind of felt you know, a kinship there is our first feature it was it was theirs and uh, and we worked with them and kind of explained the vibe and the feeling um, of what we were looking for, especially for that that opening shot and then that re reoccurs in, in different ways throughout the, the film. But I remember us giving that direction and then a few days later we were I think we didn't get that first shot on like the third or fourth day of shooting everyone was kind of like depressed about it. And, uh, and we get an email from Nate and Roman, and it was just those four notes of the, of, of the intro. And it lifted everyone's spirits. It was, it was, it was a it was great, exactly what we were looking for. it was a great email to get at three o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and to be able to, you know, I, we, we uh, made it over to our producers and everybody else that, that would care. I don't care if it was crafts, everybody to listen to it because we were so excited and so for us, once we heard that music, we became that much more committed to making sure that we pulled this off and that it would work. You know, the, the, the idea for, for me anyway, I, I think watching Gone with the Wind, which, which is an extraordinary achievement in filmmaking, um, regardless of how you see it on the political sort of side of it. For me, I think of it as, as incredibly effective propaganda, beautifully shot, effective propaganda in recasting 
um, what we are supposed to believe and think about the antebellum South. And it was so effective, in fact, that I even knew of a good many young black girls growing up that would refer to themselves as Scarlet, you know, in demonstrating their drama and not even recognizing what that meant because mm -hmm. they were they were blinded to it. They didn't see themselves in the enslaved people. Um, uh, the, the caricatures of these enslaved people were not accurate to what and how black people feel and look and think of ourselves. You know, it's, it was a, it was a caricature. It was, it was, um, it was, you know, this nobility, this faux nobility that was presented of, of the, the Southern gentleman and, and the lady of the house. Uh, and so the music that I remember that sweeping those violins that we remember from Gone with the Wind, we also wanted to incorporate that or integrate that within the film at some level to remind uh, our audience of how we had been intoxicated um, by this idea of a really romantic, romanticized, beautiful antebellum South. And we did not, we, we didn't shy away from it. It was important to us that we lean into the beauty of, of the South. Um, I was, I'm a, born and raised in the South. And I, I, I thought we thought that was important, you know, to also look at it through the prism of Tennessee Williams and say, well, you know, what is, what could that look like? And combining that with, with the music, with the score, um, hopefully would, would stir the imagination and have people thinking without us having to just say it outright. Um, like we could have used a, a crazy, font treatment that looked just like Gone with the Wind for the front of the movie, that would have been, you know, in our minds, ridiculous. We wanted a subtle nod where the audience would say, wow, like I used to look at this movie and I used to look at the Antebellum South in a completely different way. We became, Antebellum became the sixth most looked up word. Uh, yeah, in 2020, people did not know what, before when we checked it, you know, people really didn't know what antebellum meant, um, you know. Well, it's interesting. I mean, you, you guys have, and I think in a very provocative way, weaponized uh, in a good way, kind of heavy symbols that are in the culture, whether it's using the lenses of Gone with the Wind to, um, you know, your music choices to um, the, you know, Robert E. Lee statue to the Confederate flag. It's taking these very potent symbols and putting them in your, you know, sort of into your consciousness in a very provocative way. Talk about the kind of you know, the provocative nature of the movie, you're definitely like, you're pushing buttons doing it. And it unabashedly in a very, you know, ballsy and provocative and fascinating way. Did you ever have any sort of fears or misgivings about the level of violence, the tonal shifts, the, the sort of heavy symbols being tossed around? Kind of talk to us about that. You know, look, I think for, for us, we understood going into it, um, what we were looking to achieve with the film. And we sat in the audience and listened to Todd Phillips uh, at the DGA have a conversation about Joker. And there was, you know, obviously a lot of controversy around that movie. And when we watched it, we, we did not think it was, was so controversial that it needed to be like this, you know, this, this conversation of what an artist as a director and, and the filmmaker, what they should and shouldn't do. 
Um, and and at that time, I said to C, well, well, wait until they, I mean, you know, wait until they see antebellum, like, because we're not going to serve as co-conspirators in the erasure of our own shared history. It's really important to us when you think about um, the violence. Everyone these days, I think that we have to respect the fact that people can become triggered by myriad things, um, depending on what your personal sort of experience is as a human on this planet. But at the same time, I think that we also need to recognize the importance of telling the truth, the unvarnished truth. And some people in the beginning might have said, well, this feels really um, heavy handed. And then the Capitol riots happen. And I'm here to tell you that, that it only is the tip of the proverbial iceberg. And what we were trying to say is here's a mirror and look at what's happening right underneath your nose. For us as black people, these symbols of white supremacy have been ubiquitous, omnipresent um, for all of our entire lifetimes. That it is a reminder that, you know, you don't get to be on equal footing with us. And that at the end of the day, this is our country and the currency of our whiteness, no matter what you achieve individually as a black person, will always supersede that of, of, of who you are and, and what you're doing in life. It's, it's my currency. It's my country. And I also need to go out of my way to tell myself and my, my countrymen a lie about our history. And we've all done a really good job, unfortunately, of supporting this lie up until now. I think we've got to dismantle all of that and tell the truth and confront it. We never meant in shooting antebellum, uh, uh, we, we didn't engage in any gratuitous violence. We wanted to actually show what would happen, um, what did happen in the past and what could happen. And so, um, you know, our ardent hope is that people, uh, the audience looks at it and feels like, you know, absolutely, I had an experience. I think that it can be a tough watch. And I think that you have to be respectful of people and their unique experiences and perspectives and how they may be triggered by certain things. But you cannot allow um, the potential of someone feeling upset by seeing something uh, for the truth to be a casualty of you trying to make something that that makes people feel comfortable. I'm not trying to, and Christopher's not trying to make people feel comfortable. We're trying to do the exact opposite. We're trying to make you feel uncomfortable. To yeah, to, pro to provoke you and, and to sort of to stimulate a reaction. There's no way to sit through your movie and be unmoved. You may viscerally react negatively you may be put off or you may sort of be you know incredibly enveloped and moved and, and sort of you know in tears at the end of it but you're not going to watch this movie and and say oh that was not an experience it undeniably is so, oh well that, i mean that's a huge compliment to her thank you very much i mean that's the that's the point is that we want people in all of our films moving forward you know that's why it was in, it was crucial that we lay down the gauntlet with our first feature to say, you know, this is who Bush and Renz 
are. Um, and we're always going to ensure that our audience has an experience and that, that you felt something, that you experienced something. And I think that, that it's also important, uh, you and I uh, were talking about something earlier, kind of offline, which I, I think is interesting to talk about, is that, you know, yes, the, the beauty uh, is made that much more sort of, I think the horror is made that much more horrific by the beauty. But we didn't set out, and I don't think that we, you know, it was never in our minds that we were making a horror film. We're, we were making a film um, that, you know, it's hard for the studio because it's really a psychological thriller. And like I was saying to you. Genre bending. It's, it's defiantly genre bending. Yeah. But like, you know, I was saying to you, it's like tr true crime. You know, it's, it's sort of like reverse engineering a true crime story that mm -hmm. hasn't happened. To say, you know, imagine, I think that so much of, of, of what a lot of audience members have told us is the most horrific thing about Antebellum is its plausibility. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. That's the thing. So, yeah, and strike, strikingly so, in light of sort of when you guys began writing the script, making the film, you know, a delayed release, it's amazing to watch those sort of cultural shifts underneath it that just make it more and more like prescient and potent. And that must have been sort of strange and surreal as filmmakers to watch the world kind of catching up to sort of what you had forecast. Yeah, it's it's it, it was a, a ride <laughs> the whole the whole release of this. I mean, from you know, a month before our first movie comes out, every theater in the world closes down to, to you know, the, the protests and what happened with George Floyd and Ronald Taylor. And, and I, I think it, the movie could be perceived differently before that all happened. And, and after, I think um, I, 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 it's only speculation on, on how, it, how it would be received differently, but obviously, you know, everything that happened um, up and through the Capitol riots uh, plays a, a role in how people come to this movie and, and, and view it. I mean, look, you know, when you're talking about um, uh, anything that has to do with, with slavery, with the enslavement of Black people and that history um, of America and that shared history that we have, it, it's difficult. And, and people within my own black community have real difficulty and, and slave fatigue, even within the context of something that is modern, contemporary. It's, can we get away from those narratives? And what we would say is, I, I think that, that if you're not careful, um, the truth will, will become increasingly blurred. And in 10 years time, you know, in textbooks, is it possible that that slavery ever happened? Mm -hmm. And I, I just think that we have to be really careful about um, policing which stories should be told um, and, and how they they should be told. I think we've got to be open as filmmakers. You know that that's a part of it. It's the baptism by fire. You've got to be. You've got to be prepared for how the audience and critics alike receive your art. And you also have to recognize that, um, you know, you make something that you hope stands the test of time, that it's not something just for this moment, mm -hmm. but that it's a snapshot of, you know, this film was born of the moment. It actually belongs to 
uh, the period that we that we created it from. And even if you look at at Gone with the Wind, for instance, I think it's such a it's such an important time capsule, not only because of of what the film is saying, but also what it's not saying, and and its determination of Hollywood at that time and whoever was backing it to say it is important that we uh, continue to support this false idea of the antebellum South so much in fact that this is what we're we're going to create this movie that basically represents and and recast uh, the the cruelty and the brutality that was the antebellum South so I think antebellum it should be considered we hope uh, it it will be its own time capsule and people yeah, will right. go back will go back and look at it and it and it stands the test of time you don't want to make something that's just for the moment, flash in the pan. It should be something that that you really have thought about and that you want, you know, to see it 20, 30 years from now that you can look back and say, wow, this movie within the context of that particular period, I understand. Well, an interesting sort of point of, uh, that, that we've sort of neglected to this up until now, which I think is like bears mentioning is the massive tonal shifts in the middle of this movie. Like mm-hmm. suddenly in the middle of the movie, I find myself laughing my off and and like that's such a dramatic kind of turn to take and card turn from the chronological shift from the past tense story to the contemporary story to the final blurring like that's an incredible tightrope to walk um tonally chronologically and then with the sort of incredible payoff at the end that's sort of where you get you know where you understand the kind of liminal nature of it talk about talk about making those turns you know it felt like we filmed two different movies. <laughs> By the time we finished uh, all the work on the plantation, we got to New Orleans and, and downtown, and we brought in new cast that that hadn't been a part of of shooting on the plantation, and it felt incredibly different. Um, and it needed to, uh, and and it was important. And I think that you know we love Gabrielle Sidibe. I think she is, she's amazing one of the reasons why it, it really just feels authentic and, and she, she does such an incredible job of just bringing you in and making you feel a part of this group of women and making it so it, it really hits you over the head even harder when it takes that final turn into the, the third act. We wanted to, you know, when you think about enslaved people, we don't know about their stories before. Mm-hmm. Uh, their surnames, their religion, their culture erased mm-hmm. and permanently branded with a new surname and a new identity. And a part of the deliberate um, choice with the tonal shifts is to say, this is a person that is living her life and this is what it looked like. And it was, it was beautiful. She was someone's wife and someone's mother and a pillar of her community and um, a a thriving, you know, a thought leader, um, a supporter of HBCU schools, just this really extraordinary person. And then stolen, plucked and deposited in this nightmare. And that's what we wanted to demonstrate so that when you got to the, the final scene of the film, when she's shedding it all, and she's swinging that axe 
And we have in the, in the second act of the film, when she says to her daughter, Kennedy, when you look up in the sky and you see that big airplane, you'll know that's mommy coming home to you. And then when we conclude the film and the plane is flying over and it hits the edge and the screen goes black, that means that she is she is out of this nightmare. So those tonal shifts were really deliberate and we wanted the audience to feel, well, this was her life before. Um, the magic trick in the chronological order, it was, it was imperative that we immerse and intoxicate the audience with the idea that they actually are in the antebellum South. That's not for the reason of a, of, you know, a twist. It is, it is to show people that just by shifting paradigm and, and what we choose to show you in a shot versus what we don't, you would absolutely believe that this is the antebellum South and that you couldn't achieve that without starting from when uh, Veronica Henley and all of you know, her, her people were recaptured at the start of the film. And then we take you from when the phone rings and she's back in her apartment, we want it or her townhome in DC. We want that disorientation. We want you to, not quite know where you are in understanding that what is reality and what isn't. Um, yeah. And so the dream state versus reality, um, it was just something we really enjoyed playing with. And, and, you know, we had to be really persuasive uh, with the studio about why we wanted to do that and what you wanted to conceal and what you wanted to reveal and when, and consequently what that impact on the audience is. Right. Yeah, because, you know, it was it, it it's really all about when you are going to uh, provide certain information to the audience. At, it's it's crucial. The time, the, cho- the, 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 the time within the, the film that you decide to reveal the information. And so for us um, shooting it in this way and we knew that it would feel really jolting. Uh, to the audience to go from, you know, this antebellum South to this release and relief, this respite from all of this, this horror and intensity was quite deliberate. Um, And, and I, I think at least to some extent, it keeps some people after they've had a hard, you know, it's, you know, some, for some people it's difficult those first 28 minutes. And so when you're in, the modern era and you get this break from that, but you also see her Veronica Henley and all of her glory. And you understand the tragedy of what was lost in stealing or trying to steal this woman's humanity. How did you map the performance with Janelle? Because it is such like those card turns and your ability to connect with her um, in the different sections of the movie, because you literally can't tell where the movie is going. And yet there's a beautiful consistency of character and kind of progressive reveal such that when I got to the end, I was like, oh, I need to go watch the beginning of this movie again and rewatch the opening shot. Talk about sort of mapping that out with her and, and sort of having how you achieved the, the continuity and evolution of the performance with Janelle. I don't know if we've mentioned this before, but we um, have had 
an obsession with Abby Phillip from CNN for a while before even the rest of the world discovered her. And what we really appreciated about her was this, this quiet power um, that, that Janelle also shares that quality in there's a quietness. I mean, people know about Janelle Monet as the electrifying performer on stage. Um, but she's also, she has a, a furnace that burns within her that is, that is veiled by this quiet and composed veneer. And that is, is probably the primary reason that we were so excited about having her in this role, because that's, that is the consistency that you're talking about. That thread is that Veronica is, she has a, a certain agency over herself and her life and the way that she comports herself. And the entire time, there's so much going on that she's plotting and planning mm -hmm. without revealing. And I think uh, the enslaved people, even in the original Antebellum South, so much of the time they had to act, they had to perform. Mm -hmm in hiding what they really thought and what they were really up to and what they were really planning just as a matter of survival. And the vestiges of that still remain with us as black people today. Um, Sanford Biggers, who's a dear friend of ours and one of the most celebrated living black artists today, he was a consultant on the project. And we talked a lot about code switching mm -hmm. and what it means to have to present yourself in one way in order to just survive from being pulled over by a police officer or to just get that, that job interview um, when your name is Tariq Johnson and how you must sound over the phone in order to even get access to an right. interview. So these are, these are all um, sort of qualities that Veronica Henley um, had to understand and adopt early on in her life and carry them through. So all that she used in her real life as Veronica Henley, all of those tools that she earned along the way in her life, she was able to apply those same tools in order to liberate herself from that nightmare. Um, mm -hmm. Even if you go back to just the, you know, uh, the, the, the basic of, you know, her yoga practice and then her yoga the of that was beautiful. You know, one of the, one of the ways that she was able to every single thing that she had at her disposal to say, how can I liberate myself and free myself from this nightmare? And hopefully all of these people, um, I'm going to take all of those tools and use it. And so that's what you saw. It wasn't Veronica and Eden. They shared that, that same, um, methodology in the way that they would approach their lives. And, um, and so, you know, she was just as sort of quiet and reserved and confident uh, and constantly making her way through it of how I'm going to solve this problem and get away from these psychopaths. So, so talk about, um, uh, there's, there's a wonderful symmetry to the film. Um, and, 
And, and there's also a, an incredible use of color. You can, you can really sense the, the kind of um, architecture of the design. I wonder if you can kind of talk about both those things. And by symmetry, I'm talking about, you know, the use of the rope in the opening scene as it's mirrored in the closing scene. But, but the use of color, I thought, was so striking from, um, you know, the individual color palette of the dresses to the white and brown horse in the opening shot to the striking green dress at the end of it. Uh, it, it, it was obviously so clearly and lovingly designed. Talk about color and symmetry. Well, color was a huge uh, discussion from even when we were writing it through pre-production and, and when we were working through color with, with Mitch at the end, who was incredible. Mitch Paulson. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, the, you mentioned the green dress and, and we show Veronica thriving and just beautiful, really, in her, in, in the green dress in the modern world. Um, juxtaposed to her green dress and we see her in, in the antebellum South and color was, was huge because there are many scenes where you look at it and the landscape and it's just a beautiful landscape and a beautiful shot and, and the horror that was going on next to it, you know, really pumping up the beauty of it only intensified the horror and the feeling uh, of horror that you had while watching. I mean, we, we, every little detail, we wanted people to have as much sort of, I, I don't know if, if fun is the appropriate word um, in, in discovering the Easter eggs that we laid throughout this movie in, in what we were trying to say in that the William Faulkner quote in the beginning the past is is is, ne is never dead. Never dead. It's not even in the it's not even the past. Is essentially that is the 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 architecture for the entire film mm -hmm. is creating these. If you look, for instance, in the hotel, which I thought it was I, 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 in New Orleans, which is one of our favorite towns on earth. Uh, we went to this to this hotel, and they had this um, beautiful mural painting. Uh, of these women sitting in front of a plantation that looked almost identical to where we shot Antebellum. And they were picnicking with Don Perignon and they had their big ball dresses on and the Southern gentlemen were on their horses. And, and we said, well, that's exactly Antebellum. But more, more than that, here it is that you've got people like myself that are in a lounge in an upscale hotel having to look at this mural in the backdrop and it is right under your nose. It's all around you. So when you look at Veronica Henley at the hotel, when she's, um, you know, asking for the concierge to make a reservation for her and the woman who is, is the, the microaggression that takes place right behind her is a painting of a plantation. Mm -hmm. And she's also the same woman that was in the tent that was walking with Jenna Malone and, and you'll miss it if you don't pay attention. So all of those Easter eggs, those were built within the script. And we worked very closely with our producers, Zeb Foreman and Sean McKittrick and Ray Mansfield. We wanted to really lean and Sanford Biggers, our, our consultant on the art side and Jeremy Woodward, who is just an extraordinary production designer um, to make sure that throughout the film, 
you knew, hopefully, as an, as an audience member that you need to be alert and active because everything means something and all of these symbols are tied together in some way. Um, and so I, I'm, I'm so happy to hear that you as a fellow filmmaker even noticed that because it meant so much to us as the architecture of the film. And in terms of, of the Technicolor, we wanted this sort of Technicolor super vivid when we're talking about um, uh, the antebellum sort of plantation. And then we wanted something that felt uh, uh, obviously more desaturated and 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 almost a little bit grainy like a 70s film quality for that second act and then we wanted to come back to something that yes you're back in the antebellum south on that plantation but you're back with different information and so now that you have different information you know we're going to make some tweaks so as things that you're looking at and we finally reveal that when you're looking over the sky you know this airplane because i oftentimes would think when Christopher and I were traveling that, you know, the atrocities that are happening within this country and that we fly over and we don't even know uh, the suffering that's going on underneath these planes as we go to and fro. And I, I can't imagine anything more horrific than being kidnapped and enslaved in a modern context and being in a place you don't know where you are and these people are obviously completely out of their minds it is a collective psychopathy that has happened and they're they're going to kill you if you try to get away they're, they'll kill you dead as soon as look at you and overhead there could be an american airlines flight of people going to cancun right <laughs> <laughs> right sipping ginger ale completely right? anywhere Unaware. And so, you know, it, that's metaphor for um, how much we're not paying attention to what's happening right underneath our noses. When I saw what happened at the Capitol and, and Christopher and I were watching just to see who was voting how, um, obviously, just like everybody else, we could never have anticipated what was about to happen. But people that don't believe, we, we've always believed in the potential of a collective psychopathy of a, of a society and how it can metastasize at such a breakneck pace that before you know it, it has engulfed a society. Yep. It happened in Nazi Germany. Yep. It happened here in, in America. Um, in antebellum America. And if you don't think that it could happen again, I think that that we're really naive and ill-informed about our past. Well, I, I would love, love to just sort of end on thanking you guys for, um, this is such a bold and original um, uh, film that you've made that sort of forces us to confront all of these things that are right there, you know, beneath our noses and seething and roiling the culture. And you managed to bring it through with such um, profound originality in such an uncompromising way. So thank you so much for bringing it into the world. Oh, thank you, Tiller. Thank, for, you, thank Tiller. you. Thank you for the conversation. And, and congratulations um, to you. Your film came out on Friday. Silk Road. Uh, we're very excited to see it. We're going to see it tonight. Um, and, and we're big fans of your work. So we're honored that we were able to have this conversation with you today. So thank you for taking the time to talk to us. And thank you for everybody that even showed up to hear us chat about geeking out about film and antebellum. It's been an honor and a pleasure. I can't wait to see what you guys do next. You're amazing. Oh, thank you. You too. Thank you. Take care, you guys. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Stay tuned in the coming weeks as we bring you discussions of films from Nate Parker, Aaron Schneider, and Gabriella Cowperthwaite. And be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.